I'm going to pray and uh, we'll get to work. Jesus, uh, thanks that you're here and thanks that you're in me by your Holy Spirit and thanks that you're uh, active and uh, you actually never stop doing things in the world. Uh, the Gospel of John says that you are always at work. You're always doing something. So I pray that you'd help us to see what you're doing today and I pray that you'd be really busy today in me and uh, in us. Amen. I was listening, uh, I'm doing some training at the moment in biblical counselling and I was listening to this guy yesterday as I was driving into Warwick to this uh, senior leadership team thing and one of the things this guy said is he actually said that the Bible actually brings out a whole bunch of truth that is confrontational uh, and you can actually respond to it in two different ways because what the Bible actually does, if I can go back to what Nathan said, is the Bible actually tells you about some things in your life that you're a slave to, all right? And uh, all of us have got things in our lives that we're a slave to. But the way that the Bible does it is it actually says that you're wrong for being under that slavery. It's, you're wrong for being in that slavery. You're wrong for having, having a different God. And there's a sense, uh, this guy was saying yesterday, he said, you can either react really, really badly to it and get upset that someone's putting, putting you down and, and telling you some bad news, or you can react to it and just say, woohoo, I get the opportunity now to actually get freed from my slavery. All right, And I actually anticipate there's a good chance we could have both of those responses this morning. All right, Because today's message uh, is probably a little bit hard and I actually want to present it in a way hopefully that will help you to, uh, to embrace it and to realise that God actually wants to take you to a really good place, a really good place. He wants you to be in a place of freedom. Um, last week I talked about uh, redemption and the fact that God's on this overall history-long plan of redeeming people. And that doesn't just involve people that don't love Jesus, it also involves people who do. We're all kind of in the same boat where God actually wants to bring renewal and refreshing to absolutely every single person. So it actually doesn't matter this morning whether you love Jesus or you don't love him. His heart for you and his plan for you uh, is the same. He wants you to be a better you and not in a self-help kind of Angus and Robinson way, right, where you walk in and you pick yourself up a self-help book in a redemptive way. He actually wants to change you. And this is another thing I listened to yesterday. Jesus doesn't just want to make you as good as Adam and Eve were. He's actually going to make you better. You just, that's what he wants to do. He wants to make you better than Adam and Eve. Think about that. I mean, you think Adam and Eve didn't have any sense of forgiveness, did they? in their perfect state. They didn't need to. You see, God's going to take you to a place where not only are you going to be as good as Adam and Eve, but you'll be better because all of a sudden you're going to understand things like grace, mercy, and it makes total sense that Jesus would say that he's going to make you to shine like sun. Shine like the sun. That's pretty bright. Is that good news? It's good news. That's what he wants to do. That's his plan. The big question is whether you're going to get on with his plan or not, whether you're going to get on board with it. That's the big question. All right, I'm going to show you a clip. This is a cool little uh, Nike commercial, and uh, hopefully, hopefully it'll work. Here we go. I'm too weak. Too slow. Too big. I ate too much for breakfast. Got a headache. It's raining. My dog is sick. I can't right now. I'm not inspired. It makes me smell bad. I'm allergic to stuff. I'm fat. I'm thin. It's too hot. I'm not right. I've got shin splint. Headache. I'm distracted. I'm exerting myself too much. I'd love to really, but I can't. I just can't. My favorite show is on. I got a case of the Monday, the Tuesday, the Wednesday. I don't want to do this. I'm going to do something else. After New Year's. Next week. Might make a mistake. I got homework. Well, I feel bloated. I have gas. I got a hot date. My coach hates me. Mom won't let me. I bruise easily. It's too dark. It's too cold. My blister hurts. This is dangerous. Ugh, sorry, I don't have a bike. I didn't get enough sleep. That tummy hurts. It's not in my jeans. I don't want to look all tired out. I need a better coach. I don't like getting tackled. I have a stomach ache. I'm not the athletic type. I don't want to get sweaty. I have better things to do. I don't want to slow you down. I have to do this? As soon as I get a promotion. I think I'll sit this one out. And my feet hurt. Ouch. Pretty funny until it gets to the last bit, isn't it? <laughs> so what we're looking at today, and we'll look at uh, another one next week, is roadblocks to redemption. What's actually going to get in the way of God doing in you and doing in me the things that he wants to get done? And one of them is self-justification or excuses. I wonder what sort of person you are. I wonder whether you're a, uh, a massive excuse maker or you're one of those people who get really frustrated because you're an excuse taker, all right? You feel like everyone around you is always coming up with a good excuse while they're not doing what they should be doing. 
When I uh, was growing up with my father, my, my father and I had uh, just probably a very, very, I would say now, in, hopefully I'm a little bit more mature now, in, uh, with a little bit more maturity, there was probably a fair bit of unhealthiness about the competitiveness that used to happen between my dad and I. And it was okay at the time, but the, it, it all centred around tennis, all right? And we used to play tennis against each other all the time. And we used to play at the uh, courts uh, over at USQ over there. And um, so we'd go over and we'd play tennis. And, of course, it was, man, I mean, it, it wasn't just a game of tennis, all right? As anyone knows who's uh, had a son in their house, it, it's never just a, com- a competitive, fun kind of thing, right? There's actually pride on the line. And I'd, I'm, it's going to be like you're going to be this conquered foe. You're a prisoner of war at the end of it if you lose. Do you know what I'm talking about? Anyone know what I'm talking about? And you just fight to the death, all right? And my dad's, I'm not even making this up, my dad's last game of squash was when he was fearful about having a heart turn, right? <laughs> this is how intense it got. And he's just gone, that's it. Mum goes, he's not playing squash anymore. He's just going, that's because I'm beating him and he can't handle it. And he just keeps putting more effort in. So we haven't played squash since. But anyway... Oh, a classic, uh, I mean, it was just classic battles. And uh, the first one in the door, you know, the winner's got a skip in their step and they open the door and they walk in, you know, and there's almost that kind of swagger about it and they're holding their, their racket there and on the chair, you know, and, of course, the, the prisoner of war walks in after it and they're just dead. Wow, man, you, you lost and you lost badly, you know. And I'll tell you one thing, for almost all the years that I used to play my dad in tennis is every single time, I think, uh, almost, I would think almost without exception, I would make up some excuse for why he won. All right? Because you can't say that he played better, can you? If you're a man. Really? <laughs> no, you didn't. You didn't play better than me. So I'd walk in. You know one of my classic ones? I'd walk in and I'd go, right, here's the deal. wasn't my day. All right? It wasn't my day. Isn't that lame? <laughs> Come on, you can dish it on me, right? Was it? Just that is lame, all right? And then another classic one was, I'm just going, man, like I'm a big server and I have a big toss, all right? And uh, man, there was just a little bit too much breeze and it was blowing the ball around and I just couldn't get onto it sweetly and that's, that's why I lost today. And it was just one after the other. And even, I mean, there was one time, you know, that some people in cars over there at USQ thought it was a cool thing to just drive past and throw eggs at my dad and I. I mean, we didn't even know him. You know, you could say it was the eggs, man. I mean, who can play good tennis when there's eggs being thrown at you? All right? You just can't do it. But this is, ultimately, it's all, you know what it is. It's self-justification. All right? Let me nail something down for you. Justification, most commonly in the New Testament, is making a public declaration of righteousness. All right? Making a public declaration of righteousness. Really keen for you to pin that in your head at this point in time because everything else is going to hang off that. Making a public declaration of righteousness, right? So I've come in from tennis, you know, I've lost, and I am busy working out how I can make a public declaration that I'm a good player even when I'm not on that night. Do you see that? And it's this mechanism that just keeps firing up in us and it fires up in us quite a bit. You see, self-justification is actually the twisting of something good. It's actually a really subtle and, uh, and dangerous dimension of sin because it doesn't just involve doing something evil, it actually involves twisting things that are good. One of the uh, clearest proofs, in my view, of the... Uh, truthfulness of the Bible is the way it actually diagnoses the human condition. And uh, if you can put maybe stick, I mean, I'm asking you to wear a few hats today, but if you can stick that hat on the side and just go, how accurately does the Bible get human beings right? I think it gets human beings exactly right. I was doing some research on this and uh, I, I was laughing to myself and I laughed a little bit out loud. I found a psychological term for self-justification. All right, because this is honestly, this is what psychology and uh, a lot of secular therapies do: is they take things the Bible is saying you shouldn't do that; that's a bad thing for you to do, and they give you some kind of psychological category for it. And they go, "Oh, that's what you're doing there." Do you know what this one is? It's cognitive dissonance. Have you heard of that? Cognitive dis- dissonance. Do you know what it is, Nick? Can you can you give us like a one sentence? What's cognitive dissonance? Let me read you a paragraph. 
People tend to seek consistency in their beliefs and perceptions. So what happens when one of our beliefs conflicts with another previously held belief? The term cognitive dissonance is used to describe the feeling of discomfort that results from holding two conflicting beliefs. When there is a discrepancy between beliefs and behaviours, something must change in order to eliminate or reduce the dissonance. Self-justification, all right? That's what you get. Now, cognitive dissonance probably isn't all self-justification, but it finds a pretty nice home there. See, this is the stuff that we actually don't tell people about, right? This is the stuff that exists at a conscious level for us. It comes out of our mouth, but it also exists almost at a subconscious level where we've almost, as human beings, got this machine that goes on seeking to justify ourselves. I don't know whether it... Has anyone noticed that? You're just underneath. You're just trying to think of reasons why you're doing what you're doing so that you can make a public declaration of your righteousness. The most classic scripture about uh, self-justification has got to be Genesis chapter 3, which is the very first time that sin entered the world with Adam and Eve. Let's run through it. Verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. When you see a verse like this at the start of Genesis chapter 3, you know what you need to think? You need to think a movie where the, where the tense music just comes on, right? Isn't that what happens? You're sitting there, you're watching a movie, and the tense music comes on and you're just going, well, there's nothing on screen, but I think something bad's going to happen soon. All right? This is one of those moments where the writer of Genesis, Moses, he's, he's saying, have a look at this. The, the devil's crafty. He's, he's cunning. He's tricky. It looks like someone's going to get tricked here. And I'll tell you the truth, you need to know that in your own life. This is not even what I'm talking about today, but you need to know in your own life that the devil's tricky and he's crafty and we're really dumb, all right? And you know why I know that? Because he still uses the same tactics that he's been using for the last 4,000 years, all right? And probably, for me, he's using the similar tactics he was using 20 years ago. All right, which kind of tells me I'm a bit of an idiot sometimes and he's very tricky, all right? So be careful of him. So he comes along and he says uh, to the woman, he says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. What's really interesting here as a side note is God didn't say not to touch it. All right? That'd be a dumb thing to make a tree house, wouldn't it? In the one that you're not meant to eat from. But he actually didn't say don't touch it. And this is classic, oh, I'm going to trash the teenagers a bit here, but this is classic teenagers with their parents, all right? When their parents say, no, you can't do something, what do they do? They go and tell their mates what the rule was and then add a bit to it to show that their parents are really harsh, all right? So probably, in my view, I think maybe what's actually happened is the breach between Eve and God has actually happened prior to her eating the fruit, all right? Because she's already ex- expressing some distrust in God. All right? Um, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. All right? So what the devil's saying is, come and get it. It's good stuff. And you know what? Most of the things that you're going to get caught in, you're going to become enslaved to, aren't actually evil things. They're actually good things that are out of place. John Calvin actually said that the real problem with human beings is not the evil things, it's actually the inordinate desires. And what he talks about is he talks about desires that are good desires that become the king and the ruling desire in your life. That's actually the main problem with us. You know, and people can say, what's wrong with me loving my family? Well, there's nothing wrong with you loving your family. That's a good desire. But when that becomes the ruling desire in your family, it becomes evil because it was never made to rule in your life. Do you get what I'm saying? And so this is what the devil's saying, is he's inviting Eve to come in and he's saying, wouldn't it be good to be like God? And the answer is, yeah, it would. It would be good. And he says, your eyes will be open, you'll know good and evil. You see, when you actually go to uh, Matthew chapter 4, it talks about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. What does the devil ask Jesus to do? He asks him to turn stones into bread when he hasn't eaten for 40 days. Well, that'd be fair enough. Is it wrong to eat if you haven't eaten for 40 days? No. The next thing he does is he, uh, he asks Jesus to jump off the temple and the angels will come and catch him. Well, he's boss. Why can't he just jump off it and get the angels to come and do it? And so you actually see in the temptation of Jesus 
And there's another one where he says, bear down to me, bear down to the devil. That's, obviously, that's inherently evil. But the first two, you kind of think, well, they're kind of good ones. So let's go for it. Why not do it? But there was actually something sitting in underneath there that wasn't healthy. And we're not talking about the temptation of Jesus today, so we'll skip on. Uh, yeah, there was a Russian writer called uh, Solzhen Hitson, and uh, he made a really interesting statement. Um, he was a, a writer, and he actually uh, was imprisoned in the Russian concentration camps in the era of Stalin, between 58 and 68, 1958 and 68. And he said this, he said, To do evil, a, a human being must first of all believe that what he's doing is good. It is in the nature of a human being to justify their actions. It is. All right? And if you think again, just to reiterate, justify is making a public declaration of righteousness. It's in the nature of a human being to want to make a public declaration that they're right. Here we go. So, let's read some more. Adam and Eve, they take of the fruit. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So they've done what God asked them not to do, and their instinct is, we need to hide. God's coming. We can hear, maybe you can hear his footsteps. Maybe, he's, maybe it's audible. Maybe he's walking along the path. He's coming close to us. We need to find somewhere to hide. Because all of a sudden, they've realized, I'm not good anymore, and I need to be good. So what am I going to do? Well, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to hide. And people do that all the time. Like one of the, 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 uh, the characteristics of suffering and, uh, and sin and disobedience to God is it tends to turn people inward. I don't know whether you've ever noticed that. We're talking about some pastoral care issues at the school here the other day and someone made the comment about the fact that depressed people are very selfish. Right Now that's a very harsh thing to say to someone who's depressed but that actually is the dynamic of, of sin and suffering is it tends to turn you in on yourself. And this is a little bit of what you actually see here with Adam and Eve is that they're actually turning in on themselves and they're wanting to hide and probably wanting to hide from each other. So they're there. I mean, I'd love to know what the conversation was. They're in the bush. They're going, he's coming. He's coming, you know. It's almost like the kids are going, quick, quick, put the biscuit jar away. Mum's coming. All right, get it back up in the cupboard. He's coming. What are we going to say? And then they kind of go, I don't know, because he knows everything. He knows that we're not going to say anything because we don't know anything or he knows what we're going to say. He'll know. Here, Eve, put this on. This will cover you up. Adam, you're an idiot. He made leaves. He can see right through it. All right? And that's really uncomfortable. All right? There's this whole, maybe this whole conversation going on there. And what does God do? The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. What about this question? You ever thought about this? What would happen if Adam and Eve, at that point, have just gone, and did we just mess up? We just stuffed up big time, God, seriously. And we're, man, we are just, like, even, what if they even decided at that point in time, they go, no, we're not even going to hide. We just, Adam says, he's a good man. He says to his wife, Eve, I was an idiot because I didn't do anything. While you ate the fruit, I just stood by and then you gave me some and I ate some and I should have protected you, so I failed. And uh, we just, we have seriously, we've done something bad and we need to go to God and see if there's some way he can sort it out. Because this is what we all do when we do stuff wrong, don't we? No, not. Do, Do you get that? It's like, what really needs to happen is you need to go to the person that you've offended relationally, but ultimately with God and just say, Seriously, I've just done something really bad. But they don't do that, do they? Here's what they do. Adam blames Eve, and thereby he implies that he's innocent. All right? Adam makes a public declaration of his righteousness. What does he say? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. All the females here, you should have your hackles going up a bit. You're just going, what an idiot. All right? Yes, and you're right. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Do you notice though, who is uh, Adam ultimately blaming? Yeah, right? Now this guy, I mean, he's either really, really stupid or he's very strong, all right? And he's not stronger than God. Do you get that? He's just going, okay, let's go straight to the top. It's your fault. All right? And ultimately, that's actually what self-justification does. 
Self-justification is all about me declaring my righteousness and saying, God, it's your fault. So, the relay baton gets passed on to Eve. What does she do? Eve blames the serpent, thereby implying she's innocent. Then the Lord said to the woman, you've got the baton. What have you done? The woman says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It wasn't my fault. It's the snake's fault. Who made the serpent? I didn't make the, well, God did make the devil, but who made the serpent in the garden that the devil was in? God did. So what's Eve saying? It's your fault. It's not my fault. It's your fault. He's ultimately blamed for making the serpent and putting it in the garden in the first place. I've done the wrong thing. I'll identify with what is wrong. I'll isolate myself from that. And then through self-justification and scapegoating, I'm going to align myself with the good side. That's what's going on. I've done the wrong thing. I have to do something about this. God didn't make me. God didn't make me to be, uh, to be evil like this and to be soiled, so I've got to do something about it. So, ironically, Adam and Eve are actually doing, in a totally twisted way, what uh, the devil promised would happen if they ate from the, the tree. What did the devil promise? He said, if you eat from the tree, you'll have the knowledge of good and evil. But they got it in a totally different way than what they expected. They got it in an experiential way. And what are they doing immediately after they've been disobedient is they're dividing between good and evil. The problem is, which side of the line are they putting themselves on? The good side or the evil side? They're on the good side. They divide, 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 good side. And this, unfortunately, is what a lot of us do. And it's, it's what a lot of us have inside of us, this mechanism that we're out there and we're doing exactly what the devil said would happen, where you can divide between good and evil. The problem is that we self-justify and we push ourselves onto the good side of the line and God doesn't get to redeem you because you don't need it. People who think they're holy and righteous and they're self-justified, they don't need someone to save them. See, the other day... I was teaching in a classroom down the bottom over there the other day and it was a classic moment. Um, there's probably one person there who was here at the time. It was a classic moment where the classroom up the end got released to go and get a drink from the bubbler and the bubbler's literally right outside my door, right? And so you have this pack of junior high boys in a group, right, and a hard surface at the end of the corridor. You get what I'm saying? And it's just like they've been in maths or I think it was maths and they're just going, we've just got to flee the coming wrath. From maths, maths, so we get out and we run in a group. Now, what happens is there's this dude that's big and a dude that's about half his size, and they get to the end, and the dude about half his size gets smashed into the locker and he ends up on the ground, right? And the dude is big, you know, sometimes, I'm not saying he's a bully, but he's, he's a pretty gruff sort of fellow sometimes with his physical size, right? What do you reckon's happening outside my door of my classroom? Well, I'm trying, I'm trying to teach something about God in there, right? And dudes are getting squashed into a tin can at the end of the corridor, right? What do you reckon happens next? Well, of course, the big guy starts saying how the little guy did a whole bunch of things wrong that caused him to get axed. See that? Just absolute instinct, all right? And I come over to the door, and the dude's still lying on the ground, right? I came over to the door, and I said, listen, champ, I said, what I'm trying to work out is why you are part of him ending up on the ground and you're trying to blame him the whole time and you haven't just said sorry to him. That's weird. Instead of using all your energy to show that you were the right person, why didn't you just say, use some of your energy to say sorry? Even if it wasn't all your fault, just apologise to him. Human mechanism. Ted Peters, he's a Lutheran uh, Bible college uh, professor or lecturer, I think, over in, uh, over in the States, he said this, when we engage in self-justification, we take a stand against God, even if we are convinced that we are identifying with God. Intense. And then you've got in the Old Testament, you've got this uh, concept of the Day of Atonement. And uh, you're probably uh, vaguely familiar with the concept of a scapegoat. A man gets chewed out by his boss at work, he goes home, he yells at his wife, she scolds the child and the child kicks the dog. Everyone's looking for a scapegoat, aren't they? That's what they're doing. They're looking for someone to actually bear their sin and bear the stuff that they can't handle so that they can be righteous. 
You actually find this uh, in the Old Testament, in the Day of Atonement. A scapegoat is any person or group made to bear the blame for others or to suffer in their place. So there was a uh, Bible translator, William Tyndale, and it was actually William Tyndale that came up with this concept of the scapegoat. Let me give you the scripture uh, about the Day of Atonement that refers to the scapegoat. Leviticus 16. When the priest had made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities and sins, the disobedience of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. You see this? This is exactly it. This is where scapegoat starts historically. There's a goat. The priest puts his hands on the head and the goat bears all of the disobedience and the sins of all the people and then it just gets sent away into the middle of nowhere, into the bush. See, once our anger gets aroused, it actually keeps getting passed on until it finds a victim. But you know what? The Bible's very clear about the fact that Jesus is the ultimate and the final scapegoat. And he, his scapegoat sacrifice that he made on the cross actually means that you don't have to try and justify yourself anymore. You don't have to blame the next person next to you for the stuff that you've done wrong because he offers to be the one that you can put your sins on. There's one thing I'll just throw in here just uh, briefly. There's most probably a passive way of scapegoating and an active way of scapegoating. The active way of scapegoating is the one that I talked about, where the man gets yelled at at work and then he yells at his wife and then it goes down the chain and we all keep looking for someone to pass it on to. You know what the uh, passive version of it is, I think? This is my thoughts. I think the passive version of it is uh, victim mentality. Isn't it? And I actually think that we live in a society that thrives on the victim mentality or maybe dies on the victim mentality might be a better way to put it. my genes it's in my genes it's not me I'm a victim it's my parents parents were stupid had no idea what they were doing I didn't have a dad that's what it was that's why I'm acting the way I'm acting when I'm 45 I didn't have a dad it's my upbringing I've got some DNA problems you know I've got a predisposition toward alcoholism that's why I'm an alcoholic that's what it is I'm actually a victim of mistreatment. If everyone treated me properly, I'd be okay. I don't sleep well. I'm not getting enough sleep. That's why I treated you like crap, because I don't get enough sleep. I'm a hard Dutchman. I've heard that one said before. My apologies to the Dutch people here. We've got one. Well, you don't have to be Dutch to be hard, do you? Is that true? You can be, anyone can be hard. We can all do it. I'm sure we're all capable. It's not about race. I mean, it's pretty racist to say that. Racist to the Dutch people. I was abused. I was abused when I was young. And it can get deeper and deeper and deeper. And I don't want to be unfair toward this, right? But just think about it for a minute. Do you think that the Bible sees you at times as a victim of sin? Does it? It does. It does. Right? And maybe if you've got a victim mentality, you've just, you're kind of in this kind of zone where you're just kind of going, yeah, I'm picking all the Bible verses out that talk about me being a victim of other people's sin. But do you know what? The Bible is very clear about the fact that people, every single person in the world is both a victim and a sinner at the same time. Everyone. Everyone. So you don't get out. So the Bible will give you compassion. God will give you compassion. He will give you mercy. And, he, and mercy, ultimately, is really saving someone out of a really, really bad place and rescuing them from the consequences which maybe they deserve. And God's kind of going, yes, you're a victim and I'm going to deal with you as a victim, but you're also a sinner at the same time. Because you know what victims do? Victims work out ways to save themselves. Victims work out ways to self-justify themselves. Victims work out ways to get back on the right track without having God in the circle. That's what they do. And, and victims get bitter, don't they? 
Don't, don't victims get bitter and they get angry and they say cutting words and they hurt people? Don't they do that? They do. You see, victims are sinners. And at the project here, that's something that you're going to hear from me often. All right? Yeah, we need to deal with the stuff where you're a victim, but at the same time, we actually think that you're a sinner too. Really critical. Passive scapegoating. Ted Peter says this, when God draws the line between good and evil, like we do, God places the incarnate divine self, Jesus, on the evil side. God identifies with the sinner rather than with the righteous. In our human haste to engage in self-justification, we are constantly dividing the world into good and evil and putting ourselves on the good side, a strategy that in itself accounts for a large part of the sin that divides the world. God submits to scapegoating rather than condoning or engaging in it. You see this? So you've got your dividing line. You've done something wrong. You have a look at it. You work out what's good and what's evil. You've got your dividing line. What we instinctively do is self-justify and put ourselves on the good side. And what Jesus does willingly is he says, I'm going to go on the bad side. So you see, when you self-justify, you actually separate yourself from Jesus because he's not with the people who think they're good. He's with the people who think that they're a mess. That's who he's with. So this is really good news. If you're here today and you're just kind of going, oh man, like I, I don't really self-justify because I feel like I've got no excuse. Cool, you've got Jesus with you. You've got Jesus with you. He's on your team. This is really, really good news for you. And if you're self-justifying all the time and you're making excuses and you don't just come clean with your disobedience and your stuff, you're isolating yourself from Jesus. And this is why today it's actually good news. This is why it's liberating for you today. It's not, this is not, oh, Sunday girl's getting down on me, you know, because I'm a self-justifier. No, he actually just wants you to be free. Get on the other side. Just say, yeah, I'm a mess, and yeah, I've got massive problems, but as far as I've heard, Jesus is on the side and on the team with the people who've got big issues. I've got big issues. You come to our community group, you'll hear about some of them. All right? Talk to my wife, she'll tell you. All right? And so she'll tell you she's a victim of my issues too, all right? That's the truth. She's laughing up the back there. But you know what my great hope is? My great hope is not coming up with a 15-point argument about why I'm righteous and making a public statement about it. My great hope is to say, yes, yes, you're right. I'm, I'm, Jesus is with the bad guys. I'm going with the bad guys, all right? Because I am a bad guy. This is uh, really fascinating because when you get to the Gospels in the New Testament, have you ever wondered what is the, the sin or the disobedience or the festiness that Jesus gets most upset about? Now, you would think it might be something like this. Organised crime, all right? I don't know what the blinking Roman Mafia was, but I'm pretty sure there's a Roman Mafia, all right? There would have been some kind of black market going on because there has been the whole time. What about wife beating? That would be a good one for Jesus to get upset about, wouldn't it? And I'm sure he would, but do you see by sheer tonnage in the Gospels that, God, that Jesus is getting upset with wife beating? Well, not really. What about murder for hire? You know, I reckon, I don't know, it'd be messy being a hitman back then because you don't have a gun and a silencer. You've kind of got to hack someone and that'd be messy, right? But I'm sure they'd have hitmen back then. What about social injustice, exploitation of the poor, child abuse? There's lots of options. But you might be surprised to realise by sheer tonnage, pretty much the one that's going to be at the top is this one. Hypocrites. All right? And you know what's the most disturbing thing for us here at the project, it ought to be disturbing, is uh, all of the hypocrites pretty much that Jesus hooked into were church guys. So let's just get in the sweet spot of where the hypocrites are and start coming to church. All right? And, you know, when people who don't love Jesus, they just go, oh, yeah, okay, I'm not going to church because it's full of hypocrites. You go, yes, it is, all right? Because we believe something and Jesus is still trying to get us in line with what we believe, all right? But we just need to be open about it. The, the original word hypocrite uh, actually came from uh, the, the Greek concept of an actor. And the actor would come out on stage with a mask on. And uh, over the course of the, uh, the play at the theatre in the... Uh, in the first century there, the, the person uh, would become more and more well-known by the audience until the mask came off. That's, so a hypocrite was an actor, someone who would wear a mask all the time. And Jesus reserved his most potent venom 
for hypocrites. We need to be careful, yeah? We do. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Probably because they've justified themselves, all right? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Hypocrites are those people who walk around, they've probably justified themselves, and they're looking for stuff they can clean up in everyone else's life. All right? And it's probably the case that most of us have, have got someone around us who feel like it's God's calling on them to make sure they pick up on little things that you're doing wrong. It's like the neat nick people. They're just going, you should have done that, man. You should have done it. Come on. What about this thing? Oh, no, you've got to be careful with that. And it's almost like sometimes, maybe even for some of us, it's not even a real person. Maybe it's in your head. Perfectionism, isn't it? It's just this rule keeper out there just jabbing at you all the time. And Jesus says, don't, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't pray like them. Don't go around picking stuff out of other people that's wrong like them. All right? Love other people. Don't pick stuff out about them that's wrong. Don't put them on the performance treadmill. And what about this one? Uh, I could test you here, but I wouldn't get the answer right to this one. Does anyone know what comes after Luke 10, 29? What story? Good Samaritan. All right? Check this out. Luke 10, 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbour? So let me tell you the story here. This lawyer comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now he knows the answer, all right? So it's a trick. And Jesus says, basically, how do you read it? The guy says, well, you've just got to keep all the commandments and you're sweet. Jesus goes, you've done well. All of a sudden, though, this lawyer's worked out that Jesus has busted him. All right? He's been busted. Because at the start, he's just going, I'm going to try and trick him. And all of a sudden, oh, he got me. All right? So what's the next thing I'm going to do? Well, the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go with that human instinct and I'm going to work out how I'm going to justify myself, which is exactly what he says in verse 29 there. But he, desiring to make a public declaration of his righteousness, said to Jesus, he's my neighbour. Let's get down to the technicalities. Footnotes. This guy's playing footnotes. All right? Now, when you read the books, books and you've got all these footnotes down the bottom, he's put a number two next to a word and he's gone, let's go to the footnotes. What do you think a neighbour is? All right? Because he's been busted and he wants to justify himself. He's driven and hypocrites are driven by this desire for public approval. That's why people, I'm just going back to what I was saying before because... Honestly, my wife still doesn't believe me, but there's a little bit of perfectionism that exists in me. And, and you've just got to be really careful because people that have, that have got this perfectionism thing going on in their head, you've just got to be really careful that there's not a really strong fear of man mechanism happening as well. Like, often perfectionists are hypersensitive to what other people think of them. In fact, when I was building the sheds at our house, we put a couple of sheds up, a 6x9 and a 6x6 of the carport, one of our next-door neighbours, man, I was just hoping he wouldn't come to check the shed out, right? You know those people, they walk in and they just go, I think that's out by about three mil. Do you know what I'm saying? You're just going, well, don't come over, all right? I was going to inject a bit of arsenic in your biscuit, all right? Have a cup of coffee with me, you know? And honestly, I was over there and I was doing stuff on the sheds because I thought, oh, this guy might come over and see it, all right? And it's a shed, Right? And it's still up and we've had some big storms and it looks okay, you know. But this whole drivenness and this perfectionistic thing uh, can come out of that um, desire for public approval and putting on a good show, putting a mask on. You see, I mean, it's a ridiculous statement. You just go, okay, so I can build a nice shed and it's, everything's in line and that makes me a good person. Do you get what I'm saying? Like you're all sitting there probably you're going, that's really dumb. Some of you are going, whoa, I'm never going to be a good person because I've never built a shed, right? But that's actually what you think subconsciously. You think, if I just hit that, if I just hit that perfectionistic thing and everyone comes in and they have a look, all of a sudden I've got a bit of a front up, I've probably put my mask up and I've kept people separate from me. And that's why community groups are so important because if you actually want to get 
God to be doing some work at a deep down level, you've got to get to a point where you aren't pushing people away anymore and they actually see you for who you are. And they don't just see the person who's been able to have a good shower and use some nice uh, shower gel and put on some makeup and do their hair well on a Sunday morning, but they actually get to see you in the ugly times. Because the ugly times mostly reveal what's ruling in your heart. That's what they do. Because the truth is, all of us can hold it together for two hours on a Sunday morning. You just can. That's why I love going away on camps at school, especially week-long camps, because students at school literally just cannot hold it together for a seven- to eight-day period where they're only getting about four hours sleep a night. And what happens after that, after the third or the fourth day, is all of a sudden what you work out is you work out what the ruling desires, the inordinate desires are that are in people's hearts. So the best thing for you, and we're not going to do it because we don't want to turn into a cult, all right? That's one of our goals, not to turn into a cult, all right? The best thing that you could do is to put yourself in a position where you have less choice, all right? Because the knee-jerk response of human beings is when they actually get into a place where there actually there's some good work that's actually going to happen, it's going to get uncomfortable and it'll get frustrating sometimes and people are going to be too slow for them and they're going to be maybe in a community group with people that irritate them a little bit sometimes. But what those things are going to do is they're actually going to help them to see what the ruling desires are in their heart. And the best thing for you right there and then would be for someone to come in and say, you're not allowed to leave. Wouldn't it? Who knows that? I mean, we go through stuff like that in our lives and our instinct is, I just need to get out. Just get out. Get out of this. I don't like feeling bad, so I'm just going to get out with justifying myself. And the best thing for you is not to get out. The best thing for you is to stay, sweat, and have someone help you work through some of your stuff. Is that true? And the best times in your life, probably where you're going to grow the most with God for those that love Jesus, are going to be those times where God puts you in a spot that you can't get out of. And maybe you can look back on some of those in your own life. This is not even in my message, but you can look back on some of that stuff in your own life and you just go, that was one of the hardest times in my life and I looked for every opportunity I could to get out of it and I couldn't get out and God wouldn't let me out and I got really angry with him and frustrated and I wanted to kill him. Maybe literally. I wanted to kill him, but it was the best thing for me. He didn't let me out, and he brought people in that were going to help me to work through stuff so that I grew, so that I moved to a place of increased freedom. I'll get back to what I was saying. Souls and Hitson. Oh, let's not go to Souls and Hitson. I'll go to one more story from the Gospels. This is particularly disturbing. Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. All right? I mean, this is like the scary music coming on. All right? For all those church people out there, this is like scary music. All right? Jesus has just been stretching up. You know, he's had the baseball bat out and he's ready to smack the cover off this thing. Here we go. Two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. You know what's particularly freaky about this? Is this bit here. God, I thank you. All right? You know what's scary about that is he's not just saying, I went out and I actually worked really, really hard and I got all my ducks in a row and I got all my rows of ducks in rows. All right? He's saying, thanks God for the righteousness that you've given me. That's a bit scary. That's cutting a little bit closer to the bone because all of a sudden he's not relying on his own strength and his own performance anymore. He's actually saying that God gave him a righteousness or gave him the righteousness that he has. You see, and I start thinking, oh, wow, I wonder how many prayers might have sounded like this guy. You see? But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So here's, here's what you've got going. The Pharisee, I've worked out what's good, I've worked out what's evil. Thanks, God, that you've made me to be on this side. That's what he's done. 
The tax collector has done the same thing. He's gone, okay, I've worked out what's good. I've worked out what's evil. There's a line. Oh, I don't belong over there. I'm over here. And ironically, that is exactly the place that Jesus meets him. Check this out. This is a statement at the end of the parable. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who humbles himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself... Sorry. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, the Pharisee uh, treated others with contempt. They both judged between good and evil. But as I said, the good thing about the tax collector is after he had judged between good and evil, he put himself on the right side of the line, didn't he? In inverted commas. And the one who was justifying himself didn't get justified. It wasn't a public declaration of his righteousness, but the one that said, I'm not going to justify myself, what happened? Public declaration of righteousness. That's the great gospel irony, in a sense, is that those who think they've got it don't get it. Solzhenitsyn says this, I'm going to wind up in a few minutes. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? That's what, that's what the call is. So I want to wrap up with this. Oh, sorry. I have got one highlighted here. That is not the one I'm on. That's why I've made a couple of mistakes. My apologies. Here's another quote from Ted Peters, which I think is very insightful. The problem self-justification creates for God is that it makes it almost impossible for him to make his divine goodness known because we are constantly trying to steal that goodness for ourselves. Isn't that true? I mean, you could read that and meditate on that a little bit. Divine self-revelation, God's self-revelation, becomes exceedingly difficult. God, at least the gracious dimension of God, will be evident only to those who aren't trying to justify themselves. You see, all religion is a threat to genuine faith in God. You see, you can become secure in it, can't you? We're the in-group. We're the project. We're the people that get it all right. We don't get it all right. We don't justify ourselves. You see, it, it so easily breeds. It may not be there for us right now, but it's going to be a constant danger for us as a church. This whole thing that we could just start taking on this self-righteousness, putting ourselves on the good side of the line. There's one thing that Mark Driscoll said a little while ago, and I reckon he's right. He said, every preacher needs to stand up and beat up on the church people and comfort the sinners. All right? And when he says, when he says church people, he's talking about religious people. Because that's what Jesus did, didn't he? You know, you got the drunkards and the prostitutes and the tax collectors all want to be with him, don't they? And they get changed by him and the lepers get changed by him. And he goes and he leaves his most potent tongue for the religious people that are only in it for the, the ritual, for what they can get out of it. They're only in it for what power that they can get out of being the good people. And you know, there's a lot of people in the world that can't keep up the act. And they need to come to church. And they need to come to a church where people are saying, you don't need to keep the act up. I remember talking to a student outside my office a few years ago, and uh, she was a foster kid. And, you know, for a few months, I think it was, she tried really, really hard to keep up appearances. And she sat there on this table, and I don't even know where she's at today. And I, I, I left with a great deal of sadness, but... At the end of our conversation, she said this to me. She said, I just can't do it anymore. I can't keep it up anymore. And you know what? She had such a messed up background that she actually wasn't as good as a lot of religious people who have got a squeaky clean background at keeping up appearances and playing the game. She couldn't do it because she was kind of messed up a bit by her background. And the really uncool thing that happens in churches is when people who just can't do it on their own anymore, who desperately need Jesus, don't they? Don't they? Don't they need the Holy Spirit to actually work inside of them and help them and help to change things that are hurt? They come to a church and they see a whole bunch of people who've worked out how to do it because they've got a nice squeaky clean background and they're really, they're neatniks, right? 
and they're really disciplined, and they think it's their disciplines that get them home. And that's why a lot of the time in church, and I'm not saying our church, it probably will happen at some time with our church. And I hope that someday someone stands up the front and rebukes us all when it, when it happens. It doesn't have to be me, just someone. Anyone, just go, man, sinners aren't welcome here anymore because you're so disciplined and you've got everything so neat that they just don't feel like they, they are accepted and they belong anymore. They do. Because they need to be redeemed just like we do. And probably religious pride and hypocrisy and self-confidence and using religion to make yourself feel good is probably the worst sin out of all of them. And I'm not having a go at you. Please don't hear me having a go at you. I just, wouldn't it be good if there was like 300 people in this church on Sunday morning and 200 of them were a mess and were slaves to stuff and Jesus was incrementally setting them free? Would that be good? That would be sweet, all right? But part of the responsibility for that actually happening is us religious folk need to make sure that we realise that we're in the same boat as them. Fair enough? And I'm not having a go at you. Please don't. It's going to go, oh, gee, I'm not going to come back again to that guy. But that's, that's what needs to happen. Because you are in a mess. And I'm in a mess. Jesus is the only hero in this church. He's the only hero. All right? And we want him to get his work done. And he needs to do it in me and in you. I need to finish. How does God justify us? Romans 8, 31 to 33. And then I'm just going to go through a couple of quick slides and we're done. What, shall, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who makes a public declaration of righteousness. So you can go to a community group, right? And you can sit there and you can, when the question gets asked and it's a probing question, and you're thinking, well, how can I say this in a way that everyone thinks I'm a good person? You just go, I don't need to do it. I don't need to do it. I just tell it how it is. And everyone, <gasps> all right, maybe there's one of those moments. You go, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because Jesus has taken it upon himself to justify me and to make a public declaration that I'm right. And let me show you how this works. And we're done. Regeneration is an act of God in us. This is uh, John Murray. Justification is a judgment of God with respect to us. The distinction is like that of the distinction between the act of a surgeon and the act of a judge. The surgeon, when he removes an inward cancer, does something in us. That's not what a judge does. He gives a verdict regarding our judicial status. If we're innocent, he declares accordingly. All right, so you've got to get it in your head. God justifying you is a legal declaration of righteousness, right? So I'm going into a court and God said, you're innocent. But it's even better, all right? This is why it's even better. One of the things that God does when he justifies us is he forgives sin. He takes sin away from us, right? And this psalm up here, Psalm 103, is about how God removes your sins as far as you as from the east, from the, from the west, all right? Is that good news? Yeah, he takes it away. You know what the problem is? You're still not likable. You've just gone from negative to neutral. Do you get that? You just, I mean, it's like, what good is a nice guy if all he is is nice? I mean, this is one of the things that's going to come out of the 30, right? We think nice is a four-letter word when it comes to describing dudes. Like, a dude needs to be nice sometimes, but he needs to be better than nice, all right? He needs to be doing something that's effective. What use is it, all right? And it's a bit the same here. You're just kind of going, so you're neutral. But God goes even further. Check this out. God doesn't just declare us to be neutral, he actually declares us to be righteous. So all of the pluses from Jesus get credited to our account. Excuse me, so at Judgment Day, God can walk up to Nick Crowther and he can say, hey Nick, you never told a lie, did you? You always told the truth. And you know that would be true. Because that's the mechanism that's actually happened when Jesus died on the cross, is Jesus didn't just take away all of Nick's, hope you don't mind me using it as an example, didn't just take away all of Nick's disobedience, but he said, you give me all your junk, and I'm going to give you every good deed that my son ever did, and it's going to be credited to your account. It's in your bank account. And see, that's, that is sensational news. Because that means if you're someone who doesn't love Jesus today, or you've been away from Jesus for a while, you know what Jesus wants to do? He wants to take your disobedience and give you all his good stuff. 
And all of a sudden, everything that Jesus did is everything that you did. The word for this is uh, imputation, big word. And we see it most clearly in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him, God the Father made him to be sin, made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, he hadn't sinned at all, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's example after example in the Bible about God saying, I'm going to, give, I'm going to take from someone their dirty, filthy robe, and I'm going to give them my clean one, and they get to wear my clean one. And everyone will go, man, you've got some sweet robe going on, you're looking nice. Not just neutral, not just omo, all right, dynamo, all right. So I'm just getting some of the stain out. This is like, give me all the dirt and I'll give you a shiny, swanky robe. Got to finish with the C.S. Lewis quote. That's just a bit of a definition, but we can skip out on that. This is out of uh, Lewis's... Uh, Yes, I think it is, the weight of glory. The second remedy is really and truly to believe in the forgiveness of sins. A great deal of our anxiety to make excuses comes from not really believing in it, from thinking that God will not take us to himself again unless he is satisfied that some sort of case can be made out in our favour. But that would not be forgiveness at all. Real forgiveness means looking steadily at sin, the sin that is left over without any excuse, after all allowances have been made and seeing it in all its horror, dirt, meanness and malice and nevertheless being wholly reconciled to the man who has done it. That and only that is forgiveness and that we can always have from God if we ask for it. I just invite uh, Nath to come up. We're just going to have a closing song today. I hope God's said something to you today, because I've said a lot. <laughs> but uh, let me just say this. At the, end of, uh, at the end of today, Diff and Nathan and I, we're just going to hang out down the front here. We just want to make ourselves available to anyone who just wants us to pray for you or anyone who actually wants to come and be part of a community group. There's probably some of you who have um, been justifying yourself in a whole bunch of stuff for a long period of time. You seem to stop doing it. And you need to realise that there's a free offer from Christ where he will make a public declaration of your righteousness, not because you were good, but because he was. And there's an opportunity for you today if uh, you've been following Jesus and loving Jesus for a while, but you just got into a little bit of a rut and you're just justifying a whole bunch of stuff that you shouldn't be justifying, all right? Because you know, you know what it's like. I mean... Probably all of us know, there's, there's times where you just start justifying stuff and making excuses and you know that God's kind of knocking on the door and he's saying, I want to deal with that, I want to deal with that, and you're going, I don't want you to deal with it, don't want you to deal with it, there's good reasons why I don't want you to deal with it, don't want you to touch it, don't want you to redeem it, don't want you to work in me, I just want to keep this to myself. Um, but he just keeps going, all right, because he lives longer than us, so even if we last out till our dying day, he wins, all right? That's just how it works, he always wins. Okay, And maybe there's some stuff, uh, you've been following Jesus for a while and God's been knocking on it and you just need to confess it to someone. You can do it to anyone here. You're welcome to come and do it to uh, Diffal, Nathan or I down the front and we'll pray for you. Because that's what James 5 says. James 5 says that we confess our sins to one another and we pray for each other and that God heals us as we do that. So if that's you, do that. If there's some of you who are just going, I've never actually made the final step of just saying, God, I want, to, I want your justification of me, your forgiveness and the imputation of your righteousness, the crediting of it to my account. I've never formally ever said to you, I want it to start now. You could come down and we'll pray for you and that can start right now. Oh, that is the amazing thing. It can start now and it can last forever, for the rest of your life. So you live differently when you realise that you've been justified. You just do. You live differently. You don't go around working so hard to come up with excuses for things because you know you don't have to anymore and that he's going to change things on the inside of you that need to be changed. So you could come down and we'll pray for you. We're not gurus, all right? We just pray for you because the Bible says to pray for each other, all right? And if you don't want to do that and you just want to talk, catch up with someone, do that, all right? Or you can come down and tell us you want to be in a community group. Why don't you stand with me and I'll pray for you. 
Jesus, I just thank you that right now in front of me stands a whole bunch of Jesuses in terms of their actions. That on the cross, you credited your righteousness to us and took away our uncleanness and our dirt. And it's so precious. And God, I pray that we wouldn't become a church that gets proud and uses our religion to make ourselves feel good. Lord, but I pray that you'd help us to become a church that seeks and earnestly seeks after you, that you would redeem us, that you would keep changing us. And God, when people come in that don't love you, and maybe there's some here today, Lord, I just pray that what they would see is that they'd see a whole bunch of other people that are in a mess whose only hope is you. And we say that to you today, Jesus. We say you are our only hope. We don't hope in secular therapy. We don't hope in Allah. Is fickle. We don't hope in anyone else. We hope in you today. And God, I pray that in the coming week that you'd help us all to have a spring in our step. And when we mess up and when we get stuff wrong, it's okay because Jesus justifies me. He forgives me and he gives me his righteousness. I get a new robe every time, every time. And God, I pray that maybe even today that for some of us here, Lord, that haven't sensed you giving them a new robe, that it would happen today. For the first time, and there's some, Lord, that uh, maybe haven't even said sorry to you and repented for a long time. And I pray that they would repent today, that they'd turn, that they'd confess sins to you and to each other, that you would change them and that you'd heal them and you'd rescue them from the slavery of self-justification, from the slavery of excuses, from the slavery of inordinate desires, Lord. I pray that you'd help them to get their desires back in the place that they belong and that you'd be enthroned in their lives.